You are listening to WNHHLP, 103.5 FM New Haven, streaming live at www.newhavenindependent.org and broadcasting live from our offices on Elm Street. This is another episode of Law, Life, and Culture with Betsy Kim. Good afternoon. I'm Betsy Kim on New Haven's 103.5 FM Law, Life, and Culture. The Affordable Care Act, or ACA, which was signed into law by President Barack Obama in 2010, drastically reduced the numbers of uninsured Americans. It requires insurers to accept all applicants, provide essential health benefits, and charge the same rates to all customers, regardless of pre-existing conditions or age. Part of the funding comes from requiring everyone, including young healthy people, to buy insurance. Plus, there's a 3.8% investment income tax applied to those who earn a gross income over $200,000 and taxes on insurers, drug companies, and manufacturers of medical devices. But even its supporters acknowledge the law is not perfect. The U.S. spent $3.2 trillion on health care in 2015, and premiums have risen. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Kansas City recently announced it will exit the Affordable Care Act exchange next year. This will affect 67,000 customers in 30 counties. The American Health Care Act, or AHCA, a repeal and replace Obamacare bill, narrowly passed in the House this month. But this week, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said the bill will increase the number of uninsured people to 14 million next year and 23 million in 2026. So how do we get health care costs under control and maintain a viable insurance system while not sacrificing the health and lives of millions of people, especially the elderly and vulnerable? Dr. Howard P. Foreman teaches in four programs at Yale University, economics, public health, medicine, and management. He's a practicing diagnostic radiologist in the emergency room at Yale New Haven Hospital. Dr. Foreman runs the healthcare management program at the Yale School of Public Health and serves as a faculty director of the healthcare track for Yale's executive MBA program and manages the MD MBA program. He has also worked in the U.S. Senate as a health policy fellow on Medicare legislation. Dr. Foreman joins us to discuss the problems with and solutions for the U.S. healthcare system. Dr. Foreman, welcome to Law, Life, and Culture. Thank you very much for having me here. So starting with the Affordable Care Act, do you feel this has helped our country? Undoubtedly. Uh, we have seen uh, you know, a, a culture shift where we now accept the fact that those who are under-resourced have an entitlement to health insurance. Prior to the ACA, there were an enormous number of individuals who were extremely poor, who had no access to health insurance. And for the first time, we have an entitlement for those people and the means of providing health insurance or subsidizing health insurance to those that are near poor. But is it under too much financial strain now, such that even if Donald Trump had not been elected president, proposing measures such as drastic cuts to Medicaid, could the ACA be sustained in its current form? You know, I think the key point is in its current form. It is rare to see any piece of major legislation with uh, occur without any follow-on 
modifications or repair every single piece of legislation of this magnitude within one, two, or three years has at least one, if not two, additional bills attached to it that help make it work better. In fact, what we've seen is quite the opposite in this situation. We've seen uh, the, the GOP use this on a political basis to fight this piece of legislation to make certain that it does not succeed. And so it has struggled. It does have problems. It must be fixed. There are real issues. I would not, however, describe it as, um, as financially precarious. I think the bill itself from a federal point of view is not costing any more. In fact, it's costing less than we anticipated. But if we want to make insurance markets work better, we certainly have a lot to do and there are things that we can do. Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, and other Republicans have said under the ACA, premiums are skyrocketing, the health insurance marketing is collapsing, the health insurance market, rather, is collapsing, and there are fewer choices for consumers than before. Is this accurate, or can you amplify on these statements? I think certainly in many counties in the country that is accurate right now. There are individuals, particularly those who are above 400% of the federal poverty level, so above about $48,000 in income, for whom insurance is now more expensive than it otherwise would have been. There are certainly many, many others, even in that category, for whom insurance is not more expensive. But there are some that have seen their price of insurance go up. For those that are below 250% of the federal poverty level, that is absolutely not true. And in most of those counties, Health insurance is actually very affordable to this lower income category. And certainly for the 14 million people that now get Medicaid who previously were not qualified or did not enroll in Medicaid, this is certainly not a problem. They they have a sustainable health care delivery product. Instead of repealing and replacing the ACA, what could be done to bolster or improve it? Uh, There are many things that could be done. Um, I think that If you start from a neutral position and just want to try to fix the bill, all you would need to do is either strengthen the mandate, perhaps widen what we call the age bands a little bit, do things to make the markets more friendly for insurance companies so that they will want to compete in all states, in all counties, create stability in the marketplace so that insurance companies know that when they enter a market, that there's a future for that market. Right now, there are a lot of insurance companies that are more than willing to lose a little bit of money for a few years if the future holds profitability for them. But if they think the future holds nothing for them, then there's no incentive to have a, a losing proposition. And I would liken this in many ways to a lot of products that we have in our daily life. Uber right now loses money for the company. Every day it loses money for the company. But the reason why investors think it's so profitable and so valuable is the future prospects. If you take away the future prospects, insurance companies will flee the marketplace. And everything that the GOP in Congress, as well as the president and Secretary Price have done since they've taken office, uh, indicates that they want to create more instability and, and try to see the ACA undermined. So you mentioned that other bills sometimes get, or most of them get, tune-ups or amendments in uh, uh, future years. What are some examples of different types of amendments you think that could be made to the ACA specifically that could strengthen it as opposed to weaken it? 
I'm not even sure it's the amendments as much as just regulation and enforcement and making certain that in certain marketplaces, we work with the states to figure out how flexible we need to be so that insurance companies will want to compete. If we were to identify why in certain states we're having such a high degree of adverse selection, why are young, healthy people not buying the product? Maybe we can draw them more into the market. And to some extent, it's really just about thinking about how you would strengthen the mandate even though that seemingly is anathema to Republicans who, quite frankly, originally proposed the idea 25 years ago. I have heard complaints from people who self-identify as being in the middle class. They've said the ACA was too expensive and had such high deductibles that it amounted to having to pay for health care out of their own pockets. Their salaries were too high for government subsidies, but not so high that participating in the ACA pinched their pocketbooks. For them, the ACA seemed to basically be insurance for bills amounting to over $10,000 or insurance for a long-term, life-threatening illness. What's your response to this grievance? I think it's a very legitimate concern, but it, it goes back to a fundamental principle of healthcare spending in this country. 1% of the population consumes 23% of all healthcare spending. 5% of the population consumes 50% of all healthcare spending. Most healthcare spending occurs in a very small number of individuals. Now, if you explain that in terms of insurance, it means that the average person with even a modest deductible is never going to feel that they're using their insurance in a given year. They feel like they're spending money on insurance, but getting nothing in return. 19 out of 20 people will get very little, quote, value out of their health insurance. But if you're that one person, that 5%, who's going to consume 50% of the pot for those 20 people, you're getting a lot of value for health insurance. So I think the very nature of what we think of when we talk about healthcare insurance versus healthcare coverage has to be understood in that context. I think that we could, as a society, do a much better job for lower income people to make sure they have access to healthcare. And for higher income people, I think they will have to think of most healthcare expenses as coming from out of pocket. Who would you say has the most legitimate grievance with the ACA? So there's probably about 3 million individuals who are buying health insurance on the exchanges who don't get any subsidies. And in a lot of locales, they're spending a lot of money. And that's because of the adverse selection problem, that young people are not in the pools, and so they're subsidizing the costs of mostly sicker-than-average people. There's also several other million people, and hard to know the exact number, of people who previously were very satisfied, rightly or wrongly. They may, they may have been wrong to be satisfied, but they were satisfied owning an insurance product that you and I might not say is real insurance. It might not have covered certain, quote, essential health benefits. But for them, it was adequate. It might have even had a very high deductible. It might have had caps on spending, meaning that it wouldn't have covered them for catastrophic events. But for them, they never had a catastrophic event, so they don't think about it much. Those people, which number probably in still the single-digit millions, less than 10 million, I would say are genuinely, have genuine problems with the ACA, and I, I sympathize with them in terms of how they think about it. You know, not really for the people who um, don't have good insurance but don't quite realize it, but for the others who aren't quite happy with the ACA, how could their issues be redressed without dismantling the ACA? 
you know, it's challenging because healthcare is so expensive. In just the 10 years since we first started talking about healthcare reform, healthcare spending in this country has gone up by something like 60%. So it's not surprising when people say to you that healthcare, expen- healthcare spending has gone up so much. The ACA is not an Affordable Care Act. It's done nothing to make healthcare affordable. We are spending more every year. Deductibles in this country on average, have doubled over the last eight or nine years. This is not a surprise either. This is the pattern for the last several decades. So one thing would be for us to start to be more proactive about controlling healthcare spending in general in this country and continuing the innovations that we started to see, some of which came out of the ACA, some of which predated it, in terms of aligning incentives and trying to hold down healthcare spending in the long run. Those are the things that will have a permanent impact in holding down healthcare costs and making healthcare more affordable. Now, the AHCA passed without a vote from a single Democrat. There's a great synopsis published in the New York Times on May 4th by Robert Pear titled, What is, What's in the AHCA? The Major Provisions of the Republican Health Bill. It has seven bullet points, and I'd encourage all our listeners to Google it. But from your perspective, what are the most important points about the AHCA that our listeners should know about? So it's an enormous tax cut for rich people. And by that, what I mean is they're repealing the tax increases that paid for much of the ACA, but that is still an enormous tax cut for rich people, people making over $200,000 a year in income. Uh, and, and it goes up in scale. So someone who's making 250000 is getting a small tax cut. Someone who's making $2 billion a year is getting an enormous tax cut. So that's one thing. The second thing is how do you pay for that tax cut? Well, you basically cut Medicaid spending by about $800 billion over a 10-year window. And $800 billion is a lot of money. So if you want to think of it in terms of finances, the single biggest thing this does is remove health care from poorer people And the next big thing it does is it removes lots of subsidies from near poor people, those people that would have been receiving the types of subsidies from the ACA to buy health insurance on the exchanges. There are many other changes within the bill, some of which are intended to hold down premiums, but in many ways, holding down premiums just means offering what you might call a thinner health insurance product, something that is not as consummate as defined by the ACA, including essential health benefits and including the fact that there are no caps on the coverage from those uh, insurance plans. So from your answer, it is not the media or the liberal media um, presenting who are the big winners with the AHCA. It really is the very wealthy people who gain the most from the AHCA. I think that's right. I, it, you know, there is a small group of young, healthy people that also will benefit. Their health insurance will go down. And in fact, I would go out on a limb and say that if I can imagine a person that will never have a health problem, then they're better off under this bill. I mean, if you're never going to have health care spending, if you're going to be healthy your whole life, this is better for you. I think the reality of, of our system is that we, you know, we have a multi-trillion dollar healthcare economy and it's almost impossible to predict who is going to remain healthy. Well, for healthy, informative, and insightful radio news, keep listening to WNHH 103.5 FM, Law, Life, and Culture. We're here with Dr. Howard Paul Foreman, a practicing emergency room radiologist at Yale New Haven Hospital. He holds an MD and MBA and also runs the healthcare management program at the Yale School of Public Health, among other faculty appointments at Yale. 
He's shedding light on what's behind the headlines of the healthcare debates in Congress. So someone I work with is from a family of small business owners. She has voiced opposition to the ACA, saying it's so expensive to run a small business. But apart from businesses not providing any employee insurance, I didn't fully understand her position. If a small business wants to provide decent health insurance to its employees, would the choices be better for this employer under the ACA or the AHCA? So I think that if you're a small business owner and you have to make a decision about what type of health insurance for your employees, if you have only male employees who are over the age of 50 and don't have any children and have, uh, and, and have no, uh, aren't married, have no prospects to need maternity care, or for that matter, any other specific type of care, and you could buy a health insurance product that is cheaper because it doesn't pay for those uh, types of service, then it is true that you would be better off on a much less regulated health insurance product. So I can see that. This is in many ways a social justice issue about who pays for the women in society, who pays for maternity care, how do we spread those costs around? Do we believe that women and women alone should be bearing the costs of maternity care? Uh, that's a decision that society must make. I think, you know, for, for many of us, the answer seems obvious. But if you're that small business owner and you previously were able to buy a very thin product for your employees and they were happy because you were buying them insurance, even if it didn't cover everything they might have wanted, and now you in that exact same position might be paying twice as much because let's face it, eight years have passed, so costs have gone up, and now you're covering more services and you're providing them with a very real health insurance product. You only see the increased costs associated with that and you may have no appreciation for why the ACA is somehow better than the AHCA. The majority of non-elderly people are insured through their employers. They did not go through a governmental exchange. So many people think they personally will not be affected because insurance through a private insurance not ob obtained through the government website would most likely continue as it has since the passage of the ACA. With the AHCA, what is the likelihood that people's insurance companies would change in terms of benefits or premiums? So, you know, it's surprising to people, but for even those of us that live in New Haven, some of our largest employers had caps on spending for health insurance, meaning that if you reached a certain level, they had the right, not, not the obligation, but the right to stop spending on your health care in certain categories or overall. The ACA got rid of that. It basically said that, that health insurance must, cannot have caps. And so for the first time, people that had employer-based health insurance had a very real right to know that, that catastrophic expenses would be paid for, and that's not an inconsequential thing. Now you have a very real concern with the HCA, which allows for waivers that would allow any small or big employer, Yale University if they wanted to, Yale New Haven Hospital if they wanted to, United Technologies and so on, to make a decision that they no longer want to pay and no longer want to have no caps. They are willing to put caps on what spending is allowed. And under those circumstances, any number of large employers may find that they can hold down their overall healthcare spending by putting in place caps that, no, that previously did not exist and that makes every individual in the large employer market or small market uh, less well off.
So everyone could potentially be affected, but are the people who would be hurt the most by this AHCA bill in its last iteration, the very poor and the elderly? Absolutely. So when you look at the bill, the bill has several things that affect the overall insurance market, but then it has to do with how subsidies are provided to um, low-income and traditionally defined poor individuals. Those people are, for the most part, made worse off. And those that are either nearing 65 or even those that are over 65 and qualified for both Medicare and Medicaid would be made worse off by this bill. Now, I read when the bill passed, beer was brought into the Capitol so members of the Congress who supported the AHCA could celebrate. It was similar to the reports of when House Speaker Paul Ryan said to the National Review editor Rich Lowry, so Medicaid, sending it back to the states, capping its growth rate. We've been dreaming of this since I've been around, since you and I were drinking at a keg. I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. We're on the cusp of doing something we've long believed in. Some responses have been appalled questioning of who celebrates taking insurance away from 23 million vulnerable people. Is this a fair way to frame Paul Ryan's response? I think Speaker Ryan has a a strong belief in uh, moving federal spending onto the states and reducing the federal role in a host of activities, including Medicaid. Um, this has been part of his you know, belief system and his roadmap for many, many years, predating his time as, a, as in the speakership. So in that way, I think he is uh, staying true to what his beliefs are and what he believes his caucus stands for. But I have no doubt that framing it as taking away health insurance from 23 million people, mostly to pay for a, a tax cut for rich people, is an also an equally appropriate way to frame this. And uh, I, I think the public should be outraged. As you stated, you know, I am agreeing that I am guessing that Paul Ryan truly believes in and derives joy from adherence to, I'm characterizing it as an Ayn Rand, an Ayn Rand-like belief that by helping poor people with medical problems, the government is harming them by enabling them. It's the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps argument. With your studies and experience in both economics and healthcare, what is your assessment with this type of solution? I think that, you know, it grossly overstates who the poor are in this country. I think that we, if anything, have not paid nearly enough attention to the poor and the near poor in this country. And too many people believe that they're lazy or that they don't want to work. Many of the people we're talking about work. Many of them work full time. Some of them work two jobs. In many parts of the country, you could be working 60 hours a week at a minimum wage or near minimum wage job not get health insurance either because your employer doesn't offer it or because you're not doing enough hours in any one employer to qualify for it. And you could still be earning below 150 or 200% of the federal poverty level and not able to afford health insurance otherwise. I think the majority of poor people fit into that category. I'm certain that there are some poor people out there that are lazy, just as there are some rich people out there that are lazy. Uh, but I think that Defining them that way is anathema to the, the, uh, the better instincts of, of uh, our country. 
Donald Trump has said that instead of requiring insurance companies to cover all people equally, people with pre-existing conditions can be in high-risk pools. The government would subsidize the health care for this group of people with illnesses or other pre-existing conditions that can be expensive to treat. High-risk pools have been around since the 1970s. Do they work? Why or why not? High-risk pools can work without a doubt, but they have to be funded appropriately. If you're going to move all your sick people into a special pool, you have to pay for them one way or the other. Most high-risk pools that we've seen have been underfunded one way or the other. In many cases, what it means is that the state, maybe with help from the federal government, provides subsidies to help buy expensive health insurance for an individual. But in many of those same cases, the health insurance we're talking about has an even higher deductible than you would see in the average market. It may have higher co-pays. And the insurance product itself may be very expensive, even with the subsidies. So if the federal government wanted to, say, take $200 billion and allocate it to high-risk pools over a 10-year window, maybe we would be able to do something with high-risk pools on a national basis. But when the Upton Amendment comes through and offers $8 billion for the same purpose, it's laughable. I've also heard reinsurance could be used to address people with serious conditions or illnesses. Is that a plausible option? So reinsurance can work if an insurer ends up providing health insurance to a population that turns out after the fact to be more expensive than it anticipated. It's also potentially gameable. It means that some insurance companies will end up making a profit because they're able to cherry pick the healthiest people, while those that are stuck with the sicker than average people are going to get bailed out by the government. So if you want to do reinsurance, you have to do it very, very carefully, and you have to make sure it works fairly for all and that it's not just a way for heads I win, tails you lose. Now, I understand that insurance is a business. With our current health care system, we need healthy, solid insurance companies to cover medical care. If they are expected to cover everyone equally and with no caps, they do need revenue from somewhere. If it is cut from the government from Medicaid dollars that would ultimately go to hospitals and doctors, is there a chance that without continued taxpayer support, both insurance companies as well as hospitals could go bankrupt with very destabilizing results? So we've seen a lot of disruptions in the health care and health insurance market over the last several decades. The, the last time we've seen a, a dramatic cut in healthcare spending was with the Balanced Budget Act in 1997. And much to your point, what we saw was a dramatic uh, number of hospitals going bankrupt, going out of business, or having to be um, acquired by another hospital under duress. So I, I could not agree more that if you take over a trillion dollars out of the healthcare system over a 10-year window, you're going to see disruptions, you're going to see... Um, some harm coming to hospitals, to healthcare providers, and you're going to see some uh, instability in the health insurance market. Now, the AHCA is not law as it still needs to pass the Senate. The Republicans do have a majority in the Senate, too. Do you think this law will pass? As written, there's no way that this bill can pass, not even a remote chance. If you would put the AHCA up for a vote right now in the Senate, uh, I don't think you would get even half of the Republicans to vote for it. Uh, I do think it is still possible that the Republicans can come up with some type of compromise, but if they were to come up with some type of compromise, it would be equally unlikely to see the entire caucus in the House stick together and pass that. So as it stands now with the current political calculation, I think it's almost impossible to imagine some type of repeal and replace occurring. 
In terms of the budget, would the slashes with the Medicaid costs reportedly totaling eight hundred eighty billion over ten years, if that amount was allocated somewhere else, could that make a difference with our deficit or balancing the budget? Right. So the the thing that is frustrating to many of us is that the question becomes, are we really taxing the rich too much right now? And if we are, we should be looking at overall tax reform. And if we're not, we should be, if we're going to save money from anywhere, we should be allocating it to those that are in need or to reducing the budget deficit. Instead, most of this seems to be going to a tax cut to individuals as well as to companies. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but my last question is, could the United States possibly revamp all of this and go with a single-payer system like in California or in the United Kingdom? This was called socialized medicine when I was in high school. That was even the topic for my high school debate team. So this has been kicked around for, I think, a long time. Or is too much of our economy, our financial structures, already too far embedded into our current health insurance system? When you look at the value that we derive from our healthcare system in this country, one cannot help but look with some envy at the more socialized systems that are out there. There are flaws to all of them, but for the most part, their outcomes and their value are better than our own. And that is with spending roughly half of what we spend in this country. So it's not with a little bit of remorse that I say that I don't think that we'll be moving in the direction of a single payer or a more socialized system. Uh, But I do think politically it's almost impossible to imagine at this time uh, that could change as more disruptions occur in our healthcare system, particularly through this debate. What would need to happen for such a system to be implemented in the United States? I think that there would need to be better comedy between the two parties. Uh, There would need to be some agreement that we've already reached the point of spending 45 or more percent of our uh, overall spending coming from tax dollars to begin with and that we could reallocate those dollars in a much better way. And I think we just need to have a more open and honest dialogue about things like feudal care and value from health care. And for the last 10 years, we've been afraid to have those conversations. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Howard P. Foreman, practicing ER radiologist at Yale New Haven Hospital and director of the MD-MBA program at Yale University. Thank you very much for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us on Law, Life, and Culture. I'm Betsy Kim.